the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets and breast milk. This season, we are also telling the stories of blood donors. Milkshakes for Mali aims to bridge the gap of anonymity between blood donors and their recipients. If you have ever been a blood donor, you could be the one who saved, prolonged or improved the quality of life of the person that we profile here each week on the podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. This week's guest is the remarkable Rachel Casella who is both a blood donor and the mother of a blood product recipient. You may know Rachel from her Instagram page titled My Life of Love, where she shares the story of her family and uses this platform as a fierce advocate in the spaces of IVF, genetic screening, child loss and fertility. What you may not know is that Rachel is also an author and an officer in the AFP. Even if you haven't heard of Rachel, you will have likely heard of her beautiful daughter, Mackenzie, and the incredible movement founded by Rachel and her husband, Johnny, called Mackenzie's Mission. When their precious baby Mackenzie was only 10 weeks old, Rachel and Johnny were blindsided by her fatal diagnosis of spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. They made Mackenzie's time on earth magical but nothing could be done to save their little girl. In the wake of Mackenzie's passing, Rachel has focused on ensuring that other Australians have information and choices in family planning. She is a lead investigator and founder of Mackenzie's Mission, which is a research study providing reproductive genetic carrier screening to couples across Australia, giving prospective parents information about their likelihood of having a child with a severe genetic condition. I have followed Rachel's work with interest for many years. Uh, Regular listeners to the podcast will have heard me talk about my Pregnancy After Loss Support Group, who are the most incredible group of bereaved mums who I shared pregnancies with after we had all lost a baby. Um, And they have now got on to be some of my favourite people in the world. Um, And I can't imagine my life without these incredible women. And one of these mums is Tamara. She lost her beautiful baby daughter, Summer, to SMA. And I send all of my love to Tamara and Summer's little sister, Belle, as I put this episode out today. This is a beautiful episode full of love and joy and laughter, Um, but it does touch on some very emotional topics and there are some discussions that may not be appropriate for little ears. So I suggest you grab your headphones for this one. And also just a heads up that I do get quite emotional during this episode. I considered pulling it out, but
but um, at Rachel's insistence, I have left it in. Um, I think she showed up and she was so raw and she was so authentic. Um, and I have tried to meet her where she showed up for me and to do the same thing. But if you do know or love me or people in my family, I suggest if you get towards the end of this episode that it might not be a great one to listen to while you are driving. Rachel joins us on the podcast today to thank the blood donors who donated the blood used by her precious Mackenzie in her final days and hours. While it was unable to save Mackenzie, it did allow Rachel and Johnny the kindness of knowing that Mackenzie was given every chance of survival. And the absence of having no what-ifs allows them the tiniest bit of kindness alongside the unimaginable tragedy of losing their baby girl. I give you my chat with the remarkable Rachel Casella. So, Rachel, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being part of the Milkshakes for Mali community. Oh, not a problem, honestly. I just, it means the world to me that you want to share our story and we finally got to it after <laughs> rescheduling. We've had a few false starts between us with sick kids and endometriosis surgeries and all sorts of things that have put us back. So thank you so much for making time today. All um, about flexibility. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to open the pod episode um, by not issuing a trigger warning on the themes that we're going to touch on today. And this is to honour and respect the way that you and Johnny talk about your family and and about all of your children. Um, can you tell me why this is so important to you as a family? Um, I, I, I really struggle with the idea of my daughter and our life being covered in trigger warnings. Like it's our life. We never got um, a warning to say that this was going to happen. Yeah. And a trigger just gives people a chance to look away and I think that most people who have lost children actually know how important it is to speak about them and to recognize their lives. Mm. And it just leads me to believe that maybe our trigger warnings, at least around child loss, is actually for the people who haven't experienced it and who fear it. So it's really important to me that we that I continue the conversation of not putting trigger warnings around our beautiful babies that should be here and were here and were real yeah absolutely um and there's you know podcasting not a visual medium but there is vigorous nodding that is happening <laughs> as you're speaking and I absolutely support that um your comments around this have played so much into the public comment and discourse around the nature and the benefits of trigger warnings um and it's my interpretation of what you have said that you aren't suggesting that there should never be trigger warnings at all and I think I have heard you misquoted as saying that that there should never be any trigger warnings on anything um and I don't take what you have said to say that um, it's just about when you're talking about your family um, is that a fair interpretation of what you've said yeah I think there's some responsibilities around media reporting when it comes to um, sexual abuse or um, or around suicide especially um, when it comes to making sure that we don't when with suicide not talk about how things were done um, I understand that, but I've actually done a lot of research and there have been probably about 20 psychological studies into trigger warnings and whether it actually is beneficial for the people who have undergone the trauma. And it's actually come out to say that not only is it not helpful, 
it actually can be counterintuitive and that it can actually mean that the people who have experienced trauma, it reinforces to them that that's who they are and that's what their life is. So I don't think that they should never be used, but I think that society is taking it way too far in our use of it and asking parents or families to use trigger warnings when they're sharing their stories is really um, actually damaging to the parents and to mm. families. So. Yeah and I think too not enough emphasis is put on the fact that if you don't want to see someone's content you can just unfollow them like yeah. if people don't want to see you talk about your family in the way that you so beautifully do or any of us really because I do exactly the same and I've had similar discussions with people around photos and things that I've shared around Marley when she has mm. been incredibly unwell. Um, and if that's not content that you're interested in, then you're absolutely welcome to unfollow me. There's no need, you know, I don't force my content down anyone's throat. No one has no. to follow our podcast or, you know, listen to our content or look at our socials. So that's always an option for people as well. And the people, 100%, and the people that actually have reached out to me in the past and asked me to use trigger warnings aren't actually people who have experienced. It's actually people who haven't. And right. I do point out to them that they're coming from a very privileged position to be able to say, can you please not? I don't really want to see your daughter and it's like that's really actually quite offensive yeah. to say please just unfollow me yeah yeah absolutely um and I heard um an interview very recently on a podcast from someone that I respect so 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 much and I'm not going to mention her name or the podcast because it's not that important um but talked about the fact that she is very concerned about some people mothers in particular sorry, mothers in particular, um, who create foundations or continue to advocate after their child has passed because she's concerned about the fact that they're trying to keep their child alive or the memory of their child alive. Mm. And absolutely, that is, and I was, I felt personally attacked, even though it wasn't directed at me in yeah. any way. But of course we are, because we are always going to be the mothers of these children. These are always going to be our children. And if you look at the advocacy, so many of us do, it comes from a place of wanting to make the path ahead for someone else that will walk our steps just that little bit easier and to make sure that they've got the things that we didn't have in those traumatic situations. It's so interesting you actually say that because um, I had connected with someone who's a journalist and um, her father passed away um, a, a couple of years after Mackenzie. Right. And she actually wrote um, an article which she published and she gave me a warning and a heads up that it was going to happen. But she actually wrote in the article that when she had connected with me, she felt quite uncomfortable with the fact that I kept talking about Mackenzie because she felt this woman here is not um, moving on and is not dealing with her grief very well. And it wasn't until she actually was um, experiencing grief herself that she was like oh no it's not that she's moving forward it's that she's sharing her love yeah it's that she's wanting to continue to talk about this person who mm. she loves so much so it's not it's not um it's not something that's actually damaging to us to talk about our loved ones it doesn't mean that we're not continuing with our lives mm. it just means that we sharing our love and sharing our experience and it's not until you actually have 
gone through some time of type of grief that you actually really understand that so yeah absolutely and we sort of share it with our children in the way of saying that you know just because we can't see somebody anymore doesn't mean that we don't love them and they're not still part of our family and that's been you know I think it's so important for our kids as well to see the way that we grieve and that we still recognize people within our family even after they have passed on to give them that really healthy perspective of grief Absolutely. Completely agree. Mm. Mackenzie will always be sister to all of your children and daughter to you guys. So we absolutely welcome her story here on the podcast. Thank you. Um, So like you, I am a bereaved mother under very different circumstances, um, but still a bereaved mum. We created our family with the, the assistance of IVF. I'm a mother at the helm of a family with additional needs. Um, all of our children have various physical and neurodevelopmental disabilities. Marley lives with a life-threatening medical condition that has no cure, um, and I have also terminated a pregnancy on medical grounds. Um, so can I just thank you for the incredible rawness, honesty, and vulnerability with which you address these issues and in your advocacy, because they have given so many women in Australia and around the world um, a permission and a voice, um, and I think a lot of us would find it very difficult to articulate words to thank you for the way that you share your journey. Um, I've thought of you so much lately with the coverage of the Roe versus Wade stuff in the US that's kept um, the issue of pregnancy termination so prominent in the media. Um, what is it that motivates you to keep sharing your stories? Well, for starters, you've made me cry because um, <laughs> oh, I just... No, it's just um, the conversations, um, you know, that we have around our children and this is children that have additional needs, this is children that are no longer here or that mm. we've devastatingly had to make choices about their life and their quality of life that, you know, these conversations are so important and they make people uncomfortable. And sometimes I'm like, good, because they've made us uncomfortable and mm -hmm. life is not meant to be what, well, you know, you hope that it's going to be, but it's just not perfect. No. And to ignore it is just such a disservice to the people who it affects. Mm -hmm. And I feel really, really passionate, like even though our story has taken steps forward and we now have... Mackenzie and Leo and Bella and uh, my other babies, um, yeah. you know, little brother and another one on the way. I don't feel any less passionate about continuing to talk because it's the conversation just, just yeah, it's just so important. So to hear the fact that it means so much to other people, um, oh, that's what's so that's much what I'm passionate about because. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what really, I, I guess the combination of frustration that there was not light in some of these topics like genetic carrier screening um, before, despite the fact that I'm sure other parents probably tried to yell, yeah. tried to get attention. And I hate to think about the ones who tried but were ignored or yeah. the ones that couldn't tell their story because not everyone can and it's not because one is stronger than the other it's just because grief hits people differently mm. um and I just really wanted to create light um in those dark spaces some of it initially started with anger 
Um, you know, I really started some of my advocacy and I'm really honest about the fact that I started it with anger that this was happening in the world and there was testing out there and I hadn't been offered it. So I was mm-hmm. angry. I was angry that I was watching my daughter go through what she did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now it's love. Now it's turned into pure love that I want to talk about my family. I want to talk about my daughter. I want to keep her here because that's one of the biggest fears of of parents that have lost children because they were here for such a short time or in the case of um, terminations for medical reasons, stillbirth, they weren't, you know, they didn't get to take a breath here at all. Yeah. So I just, I just love and the community is just, oh, the people that I speak to are so strong and incredible and like it's really funny Johnny gets he laughs at me um so Johnny's my husband for anyone here um he laughs at me because when I see older people who were musicians for instance who pass away and there's these big huge um you know, announcements in the news and they're 90 something years old and I just want to shake the world. And I'm like, why do they get all of this? They, you know, what about all the doctors, the medical people? What about our children? What about, it just infuriates me. It is. Yeah. And I, yeah, we have had that conversation so many times and regular listeners of the pod would have heard me say before that we don't have um, mainstream media on in our house anymore because Mm -hmm. we just couldn't watch the news. We couldn't watch that normal news cycle. Also, we had an immunocompromised family and we were terrified of a global health pandemic. So that didn't serve us very well to have that constantly streamed into our lounge room. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're all documentaries or sporting games or, you know, stuff that Mm -hmm. we can control what the kids watch. But it is for a very very similar reason is that when you're just sucked into that vortex of not knowing whether your child's going to survive and for us so many times it was is there going to be enough plasma in yeah. when we were living in Canberra like in the supply or are we going to have to go to Sydney to have her infusions you know she was having infusions mm. every seven days at one stage we'd do seven days at home days in hospital having infusions and we only knew that we could preserve her life within that 10 day period. And if she didn't get the plasma that she needed, then she didn't get to stay with us after that 10 days. So then we would, you know, hear people saying, oh, you know, homeschooling's really hard. And you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, and yeah, it is hard. And all of those things are hard, but it wasn't, didn't serve us well to have that kind of messaging coming into our home at that time. So we just disconnected from mainstream media at that point. I can completely (laughs) understand. Like I'll read about Kylie Jenner buying a handbag worth five thousand dollars for her two-year-old daughter or whatever yeah. and I just absolutely scream yeah um, yeah it yeah. actually makes me feel physically sick it's frustrating isn't it <laughs> um you touched on it a little bit earlier and I hate the dreaded question when people had asked me of how many children do you have so I'm not going to frame it that way um but for the benefit of listeners that don't know you and your family can you tell me about the people that are in your family Absolutely. I'm, it's, uh, yeah, it is always a tough question. So I'm always honest when everyone asks me um, how many children I have. I'm yeah. always very honest because that's a conscious decision that I made um, when Mackenzie passed away. So in my family, um, there is my husband, Johnny, myself, my daughter, Mackenzie, who uh, passed away. She would be five years old. 
Um, we have Isaac, who is uh, 16 months, 17 months, um, and I'm pregnant with our third baby, but it gets very complicated because we also have Leo and Bella, who are our two beautiful uh, children who we terminated for medical reasons at 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, then there's, I've been pregnant 14 times. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had embryos uh, fail to implant chemical pregnancies. So, you know, I'm surrounded by angel babies mm-hmm. that are hopefully found a life um, elsewhere but yeah it's a it's a complex question it is and I hope of those pregnancies we have been pregnant 11 times and we have three living children that live in our house with us today and so I hope that all of our little babies are together somewhere looking down on us today looking at their (laughs) mums doing this podcast together and honoring them so beautifully as part of our families yeah um, I met you and Johnny and precious little Isaac, who was asleep half the time, but too cute. Um, earlier this year, we were at a joint press conference with the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison at the Royal Women's Hospital in Randwick. Um, at the time, I was chairing the Australian Coalition for Endometriosis Organisations, um, and we attended a joint press conference for funding announcements together. Um, in researching this episode, I found a photo that you shared on your socials of that day. And it took me right back to exactly how I was feeling. Standing next to you and hearing you speak about your beautiful Mackenzie just simply took my breath away. And the photo, it's obviously just captured a moment. You know how a photo can capture a feeling sometimes. It actually looks like I'm about to faint in that photo, mask (laughs) and all. But it just, I think I had, I didn't know that you were going to be there that day. And I had followed you for such a long time. And I'd read so much about Mackenzie. And then to see you turn up and to be exactly as I imagined you to be was just a beautiful thing so you know you guys are just there as a young family just doing the best that you could to continue creating your family and to keep your family together and you know that's what all of us are trying to do really it's just Mm -hmm. you know it was so beautiful to hear about the way that you spoke about her Um, you're such a fierce advocate and Mackenzie's legacy is so strong and full of love But can we start before all of the craziness started um, Mm -hmm. and just tell me about what it was like being pregnant with Mackenzie? Uh, Pure bliss. Um, Yeah, I look back really fondly. It was the easiest of my pregnancies. Um, She, yeah, she took away my my chronic back pain that I always have. I wanted fruit salad, which is lovely because I usually crave like hash browns and chips. <laughs> so to have this little baby wanting fruit, I'm like, you're making me feel like the making me be the person that I wish that I was. Um, yeah, everything was amazing. Like, I mean, I wasn't uh, I had the big fat swollen feet and mm. um you know, we're just moving house and setting up our life the way that you tend to do, especially with your first. Yeah. I think the amount of people I've spoken to who are moving house or doing renovations before their first is just, um, yeah, crazy. And we were just happy. We were so happy. And I felt, uh, I write this in my book, I think that I felt like I was part of this new club and I really had a bit of a 
Uh, well, it was a waddle, but I had this like pregnancy swagger of feeling like I had joined this new club. And yeah. Proud. And we think it's all going to be nice, fun prams and lattes with friends. And then mm-hmm. we have our babies. And I mean, some people do get that experience and that's wonderful for those people, but that certainly wasn't our experience either. <laughs> Um, so you write so beautifully in your book, Mackenzie's Mission, um, about your experience of birthing her and the sheer pride and joy that you felt in being her mum. Removing all of the medical stuff. Can you just tell me about your little girl? It's, um, sometimes it's hard to separate the condition. from her because as much as we hate um so she had sma which is spinal muscular atrophy yeah and as much as we hate it so passionately it was also such a part of her the way she moved the way she looked um we could tell even though she was so young um she was going to be more like me than johnny so she was going to be a little bit bossy um, she was going to be um, very determined in what she wanted. She had the most beautiful blue sparkly eyes and this gorgeous dimple on her left cheek. Yeah. Um, she would poke her tongue out when she wanted to feel something because she couldn't move. And she loved the wiggles. <laughs> she was really into the wiggles. Um, and I know a lot of babies love the boo, but she would coo in this most deliciously intoxicating way. Whenever she saw it coming towards her, she would like this, do this cooey gurgle. Oh, she was just so excited by it. And I loved that. Mm. Um, just this special, all knowing. Yeah, just mm. she, it felt like she knew there was a like there was something for her something more for her yeah yeah and it's funny we I've spoken to lots of parents lots of bereaved parents about this or even parents of children who have had you know significant disability like acquired brain injuries and things as a like as part of their medical conditions and they have a lot of people have said it's almost like they knew that they were living on borrowed time before they Mm. passed or before they had that injury and it was like they lived life to the fullest for that time that they had here with us Um, and that's a that's a beautiful way to remember her Um, one of the things that has stayed with me so much that you wrote in your book is your nighttime family shower routine and the Mm. way that you play playing music played such a big role in bringing you joy as a family there's so many triggers that induce panic um, when you have been the parent of a bereaved parent or the parent of a child with complex medical conditions so for me constant beeping of hospital monitors the particular smell of the hand sanitizer that they use in the pediatric intensive care unit of the Sydney Children's Hospital must be a different brand to what they use elsewhere but there's a particular smell of that one Um, and little things like seeing Patty who's Marley's seizure expert seizure response service dog he always has a bit of a twitch when he falls asleep at night time marley's myoclonic seizure activity usually starts with a twitch when she's falling asleep at night time so while he's just having a bit of a dream i'm always a little bit triggered by that and want to make sure she's okay 
Um, but for you, you can't avoid a bedtime shower routine with Zach at nighttime. And we can't all avoid Britney Spears music or the Wiggles music for our entire life. So how do you hold your love for Mackenzie every day alongside the grief and trauma and still be so present for the other members of your family? Oh, huge question. Um, no easy answer. No, I mean, my triggers are very much um, more related around the, they're very specific more to the the five days that she was in hospital before she passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how, but some somehow the rest of them, the rest of the memories make me smile yeah um I've I don't know how but I've just sort of you know, somehow my brain has converted like her songs nearly all of them um are will just make me smile yeah. because I'll think about her there are the occasional um it's weird like um the lion sleeps tonight was a song that Johnny would dance with her too. And for some strange reason, Brittany, we're okay with listening to her. And we we sing and we dance for her whenever it comes on. Yeah. But the lion sleeps tonight for some strange reason hits differently and we yeah. struggle with that one. So um, we also do that the bedtime bath time is also different with Zach. Yeah, okay. Um, it's the same, but it's different in that um, Zach sits in the bath and he plays around, whereas Mackenzie probably only had maybe one bath because she couldn't sit. So she, Johnny had always been, um, he always held her in the shower. So I guess there were just differences in our memories. Yeah. Um, we've created yeah. those differences and, um. And then we say goodnight to Mackenzie. Um, so I don't know. It's yeah, it's just different. They're just different. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's the same as any other mother that, you know, you never know how you're going to love another child as much as you love your firstborn. And then your next child comes along and your heart, it doesn't halve, it doubles. Like your love just gets bigger the more children that you have and the more people you have in your life so um and really grief is just love like it's all just the same thing it just manifests in different ways so yeah you're a little family and that's all that really matters Um, I'm going to read you a quote from your book so it's not one of the more confronting ones but it sets a bit of a scene for people that maybe don't know your story very well yeah from the 25th of May 2017 the day Mackenzie was diagnosed we threw ourselves into learning about SMA In the process, our eyes were opened to a whole new world, a terrifying, unfair and brutal world that didn't make any sense at all. So for the benefit of our listeners, can you explain Mackenzie's diagnosis and what SMA actually is? Um, Yeah, sure. So Mackenzie was diagnosed when she was 10 weeks old. Um, She just wasn't moving the way that she should. Um, She just didn't have the strength. Um, or was doing some of the milestones, even just like bringing the head up and the neck up during tummy time. Um, she just didn't do that. Mm. We went and saw a paediatrician and um, just within that one session, we were told she had spinal muscular atrophy 
and that it was terminal. So everything was very, very fast um, and really we were struggling to catch up with what we were being told. Um, so SMA is a form of motor neuron um, disease. So it's not the same, but if you look at ALS, which is what Stephen Hawking's had, um, it's a form that it's like the childhood version of that to a degree. Um, the motor neurons in the spinal cord um, can't send the messages to the muscles. And so the muscles atrophy and they slowly get weaker. Um, normally it starts with the uh, arms and legs and then it moves into the swallowing and the breathing. Um, really, really cruel um, condition. The most common type is type one, which is what Mackenzie had. Um, so usually it's diagnosed within the first six months of life um, and babies usually pass away um, before their first birthday. There are now some treatments um, that are showing great promise, but um, uh, they're not cures. Um, so yeah, it's, it's um, an order, um, sorry, it's a recessive condition, meaning that both Johnny and I uh, carry the condition um, in our DNA and we had absolutely no idea. Um, we have no family history, but it's obviously just passed its way down through our family until Johnny and I got together. Um, and while we were learning about SMA, we suddenly realised that, yes, SMA is devastating, um, but that is just an, it just felt like it was a symptom of a larger issue being genetics yeah. um, and so while we were looking at initially well why is this happening how can we you know how can we stop this from happening to other people it just sort of exposed us to the wider genetic community mm. yeah absolutely that's yeah in your book you write so powerfully about that appointment in the pediatrician's office and I can relate to that feeling so much of just feeling like the breath is just sucked out of you and it's it's instant shock like it's this visceral feeling of just wanting to back out of the room and not be a part of it and but you can't that's the thing like you can't even have that moment to scream or to say that it's unfair because you need to be present for your child and to keep taking care of your child and that's one of the things that I think people who aren't families with additional needs probably find hard to comprehend is people say, you know, I don't know how you can do it, but they don't realize, well, I mean, you, you wouldn't do it any other way because they're our children and we love them, but we also have to do all the other stuff that normal people have to do as well. You know, you still had to go home that night or cook dinner or make beds or do the groceries or like whatever it is, you still have all of those things that you needed to do. And Mackenzie still needed exactly the same level of care that she did the day before. It was just that her future became a lot more complicated from that day. Yeah, like it, so many people say, I don't know how you did it. I don't think I would have been able to. And all those questions, like <clears> they're, le <throat> they're legitimate because when I look back, I don't know how we did it. I don't know how, like I think I write in the book, mm -hmm. I literally don't know how I didn't die in that yeah. moment because yeah. it's so 
like I can't comprehend the fact that we actually lived through it I think I'm still in shock yeah I still can't comprehend that I had a daughter who was in my arms and then she died and I watched it like it's just I I still I go through my days doing my rituals doing my things talking to her and then every so often I'll become aware of my situation and I'll feel breathless and in shock because you just continue living your life um yeah it's really hard to comprehend yeah um the first time that Molly was um airlifted to Sydney so you don't know this until you need to know but Canberra doesn't have a pediatric intensive care unit so um, there's only a high needs, like a peds high needs ward. So um, if you need pad- pediatric intensive care, you get airlifted to Sydney, either to Westmead or to the Sydney Children's Hospital. And our neuro team was at the Sydney Children's Hospital. So we had three airlifts in 11 months. And then we mm. just said, we can't do this anymore. We need to move somewhere with a pediatric intensive care unit. Otherwise, we're going to lose her in the air, which we nearly did a few times. Um, and so that was how we ended up living in Queensland. And I remember... Um, going to get a coffee after the first night she spent in PICU and things were looking pretty bad. Um, Jeff was on his way from from Canberra at that time and I just went to grab a coffee um, and they were doing the um, telethon where they raised the money for the Sydney Children's Hospital mm. and I remember looking, watching it on the there were Sunny's cafes downstairs watching yeah. on the monitors and just having that same feeling that I'd had a thousand times before of, oh my God, those poor families. Like, I just don't know how those families do mm. it. And had that slow realization standing there. I could show you exactly where my feet were on the carpet of that ground floor of that hospital. When I went, I am one of those families. Like we are one of those families now, but then you still even refuse to believe that it's going to be forever. Like you think it's only just going to be for a little while. And I went back upstairs and they then had to get us to leave again because the wiggles were coming through and they couldn't have any carers because you can't have people's faces on the cameras or whatever. We couldn't be in PICU at the time. And again, I remember thinking how excited that Marley was going to be because she absolutely loved Emma Wiggle and but then realising that she was intubated and ventilated in an induced coma. Like she wasn't going to see Emma Wiggle. She might be there. And even if she did, when she, you know, we'd extubated her, attempted to extubate her a few times and come out and she didn't even recognise who I was at that point. Mm. She didn't have a clue who we were as her family with the brain injury that she had. Um, But it's that even when you're in it, I don't think that you can comprehend. Like looking back at that now, that all just seems like such an absurd time. Like I just can't believe that we managed to get through that. Like I just, it just seems like it happened to somebody else. Oh yeah. It's just complete shock. I remember Sydney Children's Hospital sent my dad and Johnny to the football um, and they went to, I mean, my Johnny doesn't really even follow the football, but they went and it was, um, they had a box, like a corporate box and there was other families there And at the end, there was a box of chocolate left and all the families turned to Johnny and said, oh, you take it back to Rachel. And he realised in that moment that of all of the sad stories, we were the worst at that point in time and he couldn't even comprehend. Yeah, you just can't wrap your brain around it, can you? No. 
Um, so we have spent so much time at the Sydney Children's Hospital in Randwick um, and I suspected after reading your book that we've actually had a lot of the same staff looked after our daughters so that mm. felt like a beautiful connection to you and Mackenzie and to your family um, particularly in the paediatric intensive care unit there. Um, yeah. One page of your book that took my breath away, one of the many that took my breath away, um, was, oh, I'm going to struggle with this, when you wrote about Mackenzie's final admission and you were sharing the photos and the videos of Mackenzie with all of the staff looking after her because you needed them to know who she was, the little girl that she was underneath all of that medical equipment. Um, I've been that mother so many times and I think that was a big part of the reason that we started the Instagram page and stuff and started talking about Marley was that every time I was standing there, I needed them to know that she was my little girl and that she wasn't just another baby. She was the most special baby that was in there because she was my baby and I really needed her to keep being my baby. And I'm so sorry that you lost Mackenzie there in that same paediatric intensive care unit, Rachel, because we've said goodbye to Marley quite a few times in that paediatric intensive care unit and we got to bring her home. So I almost feel like I shouldn't be doing this interview with you at all. Oh, no, no, no. Um, but those staff, I might just take that out of the interview. We might just no. edit that bit out. Oh, I don't. Oh, I don't think if, you should. If we have your permission to keep it in, I'll keep it in. No, you um, don't. You shouldn't. You shouldn't take it out. But um, we've had so many of the same staff that have looked after our children and just those staff that are there are just the most phenomenal people. Um, I think we really realised how much we loved and cared and respected about the people looking after Marley. Um, our final time that we said goodbye to her and they told us that she wouldn't continue her life um, was early in the global pandemic um, and they, she ended up with septic pneumonia, secondary to intubation and ventilation from a status epilepticus episode. Mm. Um, and that was what it ended up being. But because she was showing COVID symptoms and she had a high fever and, you know, lungs full of muck and she was bringing up all sorts of things, at that stage it took 36 hours to get two negative tests back. Mm. And because Jeff and I had been with her, once they thought she could have potentially been COVID positive, we had to be taken off hospital grounds by security and they oh, put gosh. her into an isolation room by herself. So Jeff and I oh. had 10 minutes to say goodbye to her. And I didn't take, I mean, I took it seriously, but I didn't realise how serious it was until all of her consultants came up to say goodbye to her as well. They'd obviously called them all up and said it's time. And they just said, no matter oh. how this goes, she's not going to last the 36 hours until you, you get the COVID tests back. So they just said to me, you know, you never, ever want the head of the paediatric intensive care unit to pull over a stool and sit down at the bed no. next to your child. And I remember looking at him as he was coming over with his chair and just saying, no, you no, don't no. get to sit down. Don't sit down. You're supposed to come in here and bark some orders and you need to just float away because that's what I need from you right now. Yeah. And he sat down and he said, look, this is the situation. This is where we are. She's going into isolation. Security are going to come and they're going to take you out of the hospital and you're not going to be able to see her again. And we don't expect her to last that long. The kindness that I can offer you is to give you 10 minutes to say goodbye to her. And I was like, but like Jeff's not here. Like he has got to say goodbye to his little girl. And he was like, you're just going to have to video call him. I can't go and shuffle papers for longer than 10 minutes. Oh. And it's amazing how in that moment you're still so acutely aware of that. Like obviously she was in an isolation like booth bit, but there was still other people around. I was so aware of the risk that the nurses 
were at in their full PPE being there looking after Marley. You know, we didn't know that much about COVID at that stage. It was pretty early in the pandemic. And I was so acutely aware of the families that they were potentially going home to by being in contact with my potentially COVID positive daughter. She didn't have COVID in the end. She just had an infection. But so aware of all of those people showing up um, and, you know, treating our daughter like she was their own and to be able to explain to those people, you know, I recorded a bedtime story on my phone because and it was a sleepy little lion so when you're talking about the lion that got oh. me um if she did pass away I just wanted it to feel like I was reading her a bedtime story and then <laughs> if she didn't I was so scared about her wake like if they were able to extubate her and bring her out of her coma I didn't want her to wake up and be there with everyone in full PPE and mummy not being there oh. so I at least wanted her to be able to hear my voice Jeff said goodbye to her via video message, like video. I just video called him and I just said, I have not got time to explain to you what's going on, but if there is ever anything that you haven't said to her, you need to say it now. Oh, God. That was it. Like that was all I could offer him. And we look back at that now and you wonder how on earth in those moments you have such clarity of thought. And I never, ever, 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 ever in my wildest dreams thought I would be the mum that would kiss my baby girl in the head and tell her not to keep fighting anymore because she didn't yeah. need to do this for me. And yeah. I didn't know what love was. I don't like, I didn't know that level of love until that moment. And, you know, we're in such a fortunate position that it's been a bloody long road and we don't know how long our road will be, but we still have her with us at mm-hmm. this point. So yeah, to read about Mackenzie and what you guys are doing and the phenomenal advocacy work that you do, Rachel, that could help other families not go down the same path that you went down with Mackenzie and to make sure that they've got all of the information that they need and the testing available to them it just yeah I just admire what you do and I admire you so much and you're just so bloody brave thank you I just I really appreciate you sharing those moments with me they're the moments in the hospital where I struggle um and you've got so many like where you know, so weird, your version of luck changes so dramatically, but we feel lucky that we didn't go in and out of hospital because that's so traumatising. Um, yeah. And we were told that could be one of the ways that we lose her was slowly in and out of hospital. Um, so we actually felt some form of luck that there was only one stint in the hospital, but the, I just appreciate you sharing because the hospital time is where I have the most trauma. Yeah. Um, because it's just unfathomable to, um, you know, to be asked, when do you want to take the mask off? Yeah. You know, yeah. never. Never. <laughs> um, but you have to make the call and, you, you know, Johnny and I are looking at each other going, well, when is, when is enough? Yeah. When's enough to, it's like, it's just, yeah, incomprehensible. It really is, um, yeah. And it's really, it really struck me when you said I never knew love until that because, you know, I get such positivity and such amazing support online, but you do get the occasional person that says, you know, oh, um, I would, you know, when especially around termination for medical reasons, oh, I would, they need to pass away in my arms. I would love them no matter what. It's like, no, there's a different form of love. There there's a next love. There's a next level of love. And unless you've been in that position, 
um, you don't understand what it's like to love so someone so much that you'll take on the heartache and you say it's okay, you can go now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's an awful thing to experience, but, um, you know, I also look at so much of our life as a gift because she has completely changed me. Um, you know, I could think I could live 50 lifetimes of normal, uncomplicated lifetimes and never get to the person that I am now. So she is just uh, like the biggest gift. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's not all heartbreak and negativity. Um, and I have no doubt, you know, regular listeners to this show will know that I say quite often to people that I have no doubt in the world that baby choose, babies choose their mothers. <laughs> mothers get to choose the father that they have for those mm. babies. And I have no doubt that Mackenzie chose you to be her mother because look at what you have done. Like you celebrate her little life just so beautifully. Um, to give you context, because you might not know very much about our story, but um, I referenced myself as a bereaved mother at the top of this episode. And yeah. we um, have a set of identical twins. Um, so Campbell, our middle guy, is a surviving twin and his identical twin brother, Benjamin, died during our pregnancy. But oh. um, we chose to um, carry them both to term um, after he passed because the risk was too high to Campbell to do anything else at that point we felt so yeah. I carried them both to term and birthed them both and yeah he's cremated and he is in Canberra so we are missing Canberra very much at the moment um, and our oh. visits from our little blue fairy wrens that we used to get all the time everywhere um, so I loved 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 in your book when you talked about the whales and Mackenzie yeah. visiting you guys after she passed away and everyone seeing those whales and just knowing that that was a sign from her and it's incredible how they, our babies who have passed can, you know, give us those signs and let us know that they're still here and so that we can hold that space and that love for them. It is like I've been on such like, I, you know, people seem to hate the word, but I don't know what else to use, but I've been on such a journey when it comes to, um, you know, I spent years being um, brutally angry at the world world and questioning everything um I've always been uh sort of agnostic um I was and I sort of and like we've got family members um who are religious and I was just so angry and we were both Johnny and I were um just sort of you know even if they do exist where they're not getting our our prayers they're not getting our love like just so angry and then and I'm still not believing um necessarily in any particular religion but I do I've come to really have a very strong belief that uh, Mackenzie and I have had many lifetimes together and we this life we had a soul contract and that might seem strange to people to hear but I truly believe that she knew coming into this lifetime that she was not going to be here for a long time and she was okay with it because she had something to do mm -hmm. we had something to do so um still you know we see the little signs from her and um oh I wish I would get more but I don't want to be selfish or greedy. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then you start looking for them and you're like, you think that's really a sign or did I just really need to give my baby some love that day? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so that leads beautifully into my next question, actually, that thousands of children are born in Australia every year. And I don't know any children whose names are as universally known as Mackenzie's. <sighs> Um, and this may be very full declaration. This could be very well influenced by the fact that I spent a good few decades developing public health policy for the Commonwealth Department of Health in Canberra. Ah. So she was very much on my radar and very much bread and butter for me before I was really aware, like sort of of the some of the work that you did. But I read some of the initial submissions that you guys put through, um, mm. not because I was working in that area, but because they were sent through to staff as examples of how to if you see submissions that are collated so beautifully with so much, you know, references and information and the way that you presented wow. your advocacy work through to the Department of Health made it easy, not easy to fund, but do you know what I mean? Like you did yeah. such a beautiful job and how you managed to pull all of that stuff together when you guys were going through what you were going through just blows my tiny mind. I have no idea how you oh. did it, but I'm so grateful that you did. What are you the most proud of about your advocacy work and Mackenzie's mission? Um, just education. Mm. Pure, like, I mean, sometimes I feel very, uh, I feel very unworthy a lot of the time of, um, you know, especially when I know how many children pass away. I feel very unworthy and very um, guilty that my daughter is is known, is celebrated, is loved when um, I wish that for every child. Um, so I do really, yeah, that that sits in a beautiful space for me, but also in a um, in a space of discomfort. Yeah. Um, but the education, when I, I get messages from people saying, oh, I'm, um, I just got one like a couple of days ago and they come in actually quite, quite regularly and they'll say, oh, I went to my GP because I'm pregnant and they asked if I'd heard about Mackenzie's mission yeah. or, um, yeah, I'm off doing IVF and they've offered me genetic carrier screening or I found out that. I'm a carrier of SMA and now we're just waiting for my partner's results or it's just um, I, uh, one of the biggest cries I had was uh, we had uh, our first Mackenzie baby, which was a family who went through Mackenzie's mission and they were identified as being high risk, not for SMA, for another genetic condition, which actually even makes it sweeter. Yeah. And they went through IVF the because we offered a free round of IVF for those who were deemed high risk at the time. And um, it was the first baby that was born after yeah. it. And that was just, that floored me that um, that baby was born. So education is, is the biggest one um, because without information and knowledge we can't make choices and I don't say that my choice is the right ones I'm not you know I'm very very clear in that you can have whatever your beliefs are um, on on treatments on terminations on whatever level 
but it's about information and choice. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's our biggest. Yeah. All right. Let's move away from Mackenzie for a little while and talk about the other people in your family. Um, so tell me about little Zach. Is he or Isaac? What do you prefer people to call him? I think I've always oh, called him Zach because that's yeah. how I met him. <laughs> yeah, um, Zach. Is he excited about your pregnancy? No, he's got no idea. Yep. Um, clueless. How old is he now? Yeah, just about to turn 17. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but yeah, he's, that's the thing is I've got, I know how, I know all the recommendations of how to prepare a baby for their, their next child, but because the gap's not very, uh, not very big. Yep. It's just too, until Bubs is here, mm. uh, he won't have a clue. Like I speak to him, he's got the book, we'll buy a doll, we'll yeah. do all yeah. of the things, but yeah, he's got no idea. Mm. So I'm, we're excited, we're anxious. I've started becoming really anxious just in the last three days. I don't know why, but I'm looking at Zach and he's just this, I'm 100% sure that you know, we went through losses after Mackenzie with Bella and Leo mm-hmm. and embryos and chemicals and all sorts of things. And I am 100% sure that Mackenzie was waiting for the right one to send to us. Mm-hmm. And Zach is everything that we needed to bring us back to life. Um, yeah. He, there's probably 5% of the time that he's not smiling. He wakes up with the biggest grin he's constantly happy and just a pure little slice of perfection and I find it really hard going oh my gosh his poor brother that's coming along that has to compete and you do have that feeling of how am I going to love another baby as much um so yeah there's that anxiety definitely but um which is such, just a normal parent anxiety as well. Yes. Like that's not even a bereaved additional need no. family. None of those things. That's just no. how parents feel. And yeah, it in some ways that's a beautiful thing to just have that feeling of normality around, you know, part of the creation of your family because the rest of it has been very, very tough for you guys. And we understand that from the point of view of the IVF thing, it's not fun. Like there's nothing fun about those times or that process or how much it costs or the emotional yeah. roller coaster. And to try and continue at the point that I was at. And, you know, I know that you got a beautiful promotion recently. So congratulations. But while you're trying to establish and build your career and have a young family at the same time, and it's just complete chaos. Like there's just no room to add that additional complication into your life. So yeah, we get it. It's crazy. Um, Your Instagram page is called my life of love and so beautifully chronicles the journey of your whole family. What would you say that the key messages that your platform offers and what would a new follower find there? Yeah, it's one of those things that's evolved. I mean, this was not an intentional um, page. Mm -hmm. This was literally, it was a space that I needed to create um, to share Mackenzie. I think I started with, you know, 20 friend followers. Um, I didn't, I no longer felt like Facebook was the space to share yep. um, 
we learnt, we we had some beautiful people in our life, but we also learnt that just because you've got people in your life doesn't mean that they're equipped to deal with what you're going through. And a lot of people seem to struggle or be disinterested. Yeah. We're going through. So I started the Instagram purely as just a, a place for me to share her. Uh, slowly over the last five or six years it's grown and it's it's really just a space for not just bereaved mums but mums with children with additional needs or just mums um you know I feel like I speak about IVF, about fertility, about termination for medical reasons, about grief, about genetics. I also speak about just being a mum or yeah. a woman. And I think that's part of the reason that I asked the question was that you could potentially listen to today, today's episode of the podcast. And, you know, we've dealt with some pretty heavy themes in our hour that we've been chatting. But your Instagram page is, you know, your stories are some of the highlights of my day. Like I don't ever walk away from them. I might walk away from them feeling grateful for my family and my children. And it makes me, yeah, not want to take those moments for granted but it fills my cup rather than depletes me to see the content that you put out so I just wanted to let people know that it is actually a really beautiful space it's a place of honesty but it's still a beautiful space of love and I appreciate that because that was the same with the book I had so many people say I, ca- I can't read it I've got it but I can't read it and I yeah. said well actually nearly everyone that's read it has walked away feeling really happy and oh it's a beautiful book. it's a beautiful book it's not I adore it. Oh, thank you. Like, it's, mm. you know, I don't share to upset because, like I said, a lot of Mackenzie has been a huge gift. Mm. A lot of our life has been a huge gift. So it's trying to share the positives and negatives. I'm, it's sharing just being a normal mom. I share a little bit of comedy because I think everyone needs a little bit. Yeah. Um, I also share about the juggle of career and family expectations but then also how grief influences Mm. Um, you know it comes along and it will smack me when I least expect it or it'll be a conversation someone's having and I want to just shake them because they're just being so pathetic and you know it's really hope hopefully yeah Mm. I'm really pleased to hear that you get some positivity because I don't just share heavy things and no not at all and that's yeah that's very much why I asked you that question because I wanted you know if people weren't aware of you and listen to this episode I don't want them to think that what you do is doom and gloom because it's far 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 from and it's absolutely beautiful so thank you thank you for what you do um so we haven't actually touched on the fact that Mackenzie did have blood products um, given that this is supposed to be a podcast um, about blood product recipients to thank donors and to encourage people to donate. Yeah. Um, so I know that Mackenzie did have some blood products um, yeah. in her final days and unfortunately they yeah. weren't enough to bring her hemoglobin levels back up. No. Um, but they did, it was one more thing in your arsenal, I guess, to give her another chance in those final days. And hopefully that blood product made her life just that little bit more comfortable in those final days. Yeah. Um, do you have a message for Australian blood donors that gave their blood for Mackenzie or anyone who's considering donating in the future? Yeah, so Mackenzie went to hospital because she just got um, the common cold 
and with SMA babies, they're not strong enough to clear the mucus that develops on their lungs. Mm. Um, so she actually had one of her lungs collapse and the other one was working overtime. And some of the most horrible memories I have um, was of her getting suctioning um, to clear the mucus. It's, um, it's an awful experience. It's a horrible thing. Um, and something, understandably, the other people who came to the hospital with me walked out for but um I just felt like I had to be there for her and watching it but um she ended up having to get um a tube for feeding and we think that that nicked her stomach and caused an internal bleed so while her lung recovered um the internal bleeding was eventually what um what took her um so yeah, she was bleeding internally um, and it was very clear all of her nappies were um, filled with blood. And they said that they were going to give her some blood products and I couldn't believe how quickly um, it happened. Yeah. They just had blood on hand to try and, like you said, it didn't save her. It wasn't enough to, but the fact that we got to try that and we never had to wonder, we never had to think, it, what if she had got that blood? Yeah. You know, it was on hand and when I can in between pregnancy and IVF, um, I'm a blood donor yeah. and we encourage it. Uh, we have a Red 25 blood group, which we put out there, although... It doesn't have to be under that. It can be under like anyone's. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. it's just a way of encouraging. We especially encourage it on her birthday or her anniversary. And we encourage it because it's something that is free for people to give. Mm-hmm. But I know as being someone who donates blood and plasma that you get a text message and says, your blood has just been used. And I don't know whether that was a thing back then with Mackenzie, but I think what if it was and what if they got a message and it's like you will never know how much it meant to us we got to try and um the idea of any child or any person passing away because they didn't they didn't have that available so I just encourage anyone to give because it is the simplest thing it's free you don't have to have lots of money to donate to charity. It's something that you can just regularly set up and go and do yeah. and get your milkshake. Get your milkshake. Get your milkshake for Marley. Marley. Um, and yeah, that's very much the concept of this podcast is that if you've ever been a blood donor, um, you could listen to this episode today and wonder if you were the one who donated the products that were given yeah. to Mackenzie to give her the best fighting chance that she could have had. And, you know, yeah. so much about you know, I initially titled this podcast being the survival stories of blood product recipients. And I think I'm going to drop survival after this episode because, uh, sorry, after this season as part of the title of the show, because so many of the stories that we tell, it's actually just about giving people more time or improving quality of life in those, you know, final hours or final days to allow people. Or just knowing you tried. Yeah. Or just knowing that you tried. Knowing you got you got the opportunity to try. Yeah. There was everything that was done that could have been done and 
yeah. yeah. I'm sure it doesn't make it easier, but it, yeah, it's a different way of processing her passing. Thank you so much for your bravery and just for being you and for coming on the podcast today and being part of the Milkshakes for Mali community, but also just the beauty of the love that you put out into the world through your grief. Um, it just creates such a beautiful space and gives such a permission to so many of us um, that are in the bereaved or additional needs community just to do exactly the same and to live our life with the same rawness and authenticity. So Rachel, thank you to you and Johnny for exactly what you do and being who you are and lots of love to you and to all of your children. Thank you. Honestly, um, your message and the reason for doing your podcast is incredible and I just think that you're amazing and I can't wait to share it with my Instagram community because thank you. just that little nudge to remember to go and donate yeah. is huge. So thank you. Thank you. It's now been a few weeks since I recorded this interview with Rachel and as I listened back to it today, I found myself sobbing in the car. The grace with which she continues to advocate and the bravery with which she continues to pursue creating and completing her family is something that I so deeply admire. I'm so grateful to Rachel and Johnny and all of their children for being part of the Milkshakes for Marley community and for sharing that Mackenzie was a blood product recipient. I also thank Rachel for being a blood donor. I'll pop a link to Rachel's socials, Mackenzie's mission, and where you can purchase Rachel's book in our show notes. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was genetic carrier screening advocate, author and founder of Mackenzie's Mission, blood donor and mother of a blood product recipient, Rachel Casella. Audio production was by my husband and Marley's dad, Jeff. To make an appointment to donate, please call Lifeblood on 13 14 95. Our Lifeblood team is called Milkshakes for Marley and we have donors from all over Australia. So please join us and add your donation to our team tally. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please let us know if you have a story to share or nominate a guest who you would like me to interview by sending a direct message through the Milkshakes for Marley Instagram page. And as always, please rate, share, review, and send this episode to a friend. As always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank you for my prisma.